Good morning, church. It's good to be with you all. Looking forward to continuing to worship as we open the scriptures together to the gospel of Mark. We're in Mark chapter 3, if you have a Bible and are following along. Um, the New Testament starts about three quarters of the way through the entire Bible. And then it's Matthew, Mark, L Luke, John, Acts. And we're in Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 19. Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 19. I just want to add my own excitement for Nick to join our staff team. Um, I've known his family for about 10 years now and have been able to see in them over the years love for Jesus, love for people, and uh, let's do warmly receive them. Let's do a pray that God would graft them into our faith family so that his leadership could flourish over the years to come. Amen. Let's bless our brother and his family. All right, we are going from 1 Kings to the king of kings. Over the last couple of months, we've studied the life of Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 17 through 19. And we are now sort of zooming forward in the history of redemption to study the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus. We've titled this sermon series, Thy Kingdom Come, uh, because we're going to see the impact that the life and kingdom of Jesus has when it arrives on earth. And we're doing that through Mark chapters 3 through 5. Um, we're skipping these first two chapters of the gospel, but we're going to see in our verses this morning, um, especially the first five verses or so, Mark really summarizes everything that's happened up until that point. Um, so let's begin. I'll read for us Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 19. Brothers and sisters, hear the words of our God. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and from around Sidon. When the great crowd heard that all Jesus was doing, they came to him, and Jesus told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him, for he healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around Jesus to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw Jesus, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God! And Jesus strictly ordered these unclean spirits not to make him known. And Jesus went up on the mountain and called to himself those whom he desired, and they came to him. And Jesus appointed the twelve whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Jesus appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. On the morning of June 12, 1987, Air Force One landed in Tempelhof Airport in Berlin, Germany. And soon after Air Force One landed, a host of staffers, and then the First Lady, and most importantly, 
President Ronald Reagan descended the airplane steps and set foot on German soil. The president's arrival was one of massive historic significance. For one, he was in the capital city of the former Nazi Germany. For an American president to land and be warmly received in Berlin was an amazing feat. You think about it, just a few decades earlier, Berlin had been the capital of our arch rival in the Second World War. Secondly, Reagan was in Berlin to give a speech famously calling for Russian President Mikhail Gorbachev to tear down this wall. The wall being, of course, the infamous Berlin Wall separating West Germans, who were capitalists, from East Germans, who were communists. So into this historic backdrop of the Second World War and the Cold War, President Reagan arrives. He descends from the heavens, as it were, on Air Force One. It's a symbol of the Allied powers' victory over Nazi Germany. It's a symbol of Western capitalism's impending victory over communism. This arrival changed everything for German citizens and for the world. History would not be the same after Air Force One touched down in Berlin. So whether it's a president visiting a foreign country or a championship team arriving home for a victory parade or even a loved one returning home after a long trip, arrivals are exciting and they can be filled with joy, enthusiasm, and sometimes even conflict. Well, in this new sermon series on Mark chapters 3 through 5, we are studying the life of Jesus and what happened when his kingdom arrived in our world. The arrival of Christ was prophesied about. He was the hoped-for Messiah. God's people waited and waited for the ministry of Christ to take place. But what happened with the arrival and ministry of Jesus? What resulted from the long-awaited coming of the King and how does it impact our lives today? So an important verse for setting the overall agenda of Mark's gospel is chapter 1, verse 15. There at the very start of his ministry, Jesus says this, quote, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So Jesus is saying, the waiting is over. The kingdom of God has arrived because the king has arrived. And from there, we then see two chapters of active ministry from Jesus. In chapters 1 and 2, he's teaching about the kingdom. He's confronting religious leaders. He's healing the sick. He's casting out demons. And as I said before, in our verses today, Mark has a nice summary of Jesus' ministry up until this point. If you look back over verses 7 through 11 then you notice that when King Jesus arrives, the crowds go crazy and people are coming from over a hundred miles away in every direction just to touch him in order to be healed. And when King Jesus arrives, the demons go crazy, falling down before him, confessing his identity 
as the Son of God. So the arrival and activity of King Jesus is sending shockwaves on an earthly level amongst the people and on a spiritual level amongst the demons. And it's all because Jesus is beginning to undo the effects of the fall. Sicknesses are being cured. Demons are being destroyed. People from every nation are uniting around this man. Another way we could say it is that Jesus' reign brings heaven to earth. Because we know this, ever since sin came into the world, humanity has been broken. People have been desperate. Evil has been at work. But now, with the arrival of Jesus, a new day has dawned. A new era has begun. And the curse of sin is starting to be reversed. Bodies are being made whole. Dark spirits are being subdued and divided people are beginning to come together. This is what happens when heaven comes to earth. This is what happens when Jesus' reign arrives on earth. However, despite the great impact that Jesus is having, despite how his fame is spreading across the region, we come to find out that the crowds have mixed motives. Some of them are there just to witness the miracles so that they'll have great stories to tell their friends. Some of them are there just to receive healing so that their bodies will begin to function normally again. And while Jesus seems happy to provide healing and deliverance for just about anybody, what we learn as today's passage continues is that Jesus is more interested in obtaining followers, not just fans. Jesus is more interested in calling disciples, not just spectators. He doesn't want people who are just impressed by his ministry. He wants people who are devoted to him. So in verses 13 through 19, we see Jesus call the 12 disciples. During his life, Jesus had numerous disciples, but these were his inner ring of followers. So as we work our way through the rest of these verses, we're asking ourselves, what's distinct about being a disciple of Jesus? What distinguishes true followers of Jesus from everybody else who's just witnessing his ministry. And the first thing we see is that Jesus' disciples are called out of the crowd. Jesus' disciples are called out of the crowd. So after a busy stretch of ministry in chapters 1 and 2, we then read in chapter 3, verse 7, that Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, but a great crowd followed him to the sea. So withdrawing to the sea does not enable Jesus to get a break from the crowds because the crowds just follow him there. So now in verse 13, we read that Jesus withdrew to a mountain. He tries again. He goes into the hill country of Galilee, likely just to the west of the Sea of Galilee. And this time, it appears that leaving behind the crowd works. And in the rest of verse 13, Mark tells us that Jesus called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. So Jesus himself is not only trying to get away from the crowds, but he's also calling the disciples out of the crowds. Because many in the crowds were impressed by Jesus, 
Many in those crowds were admirers of Jesus, but not all in the crowds were devoted followers of Jesus. Not all in the crowds were committed disciples of Jesus. So in order to be who they really needed to be, these disciples were going to have to leave the crowds behind and attach themselves to Jesus in an exclusive way. Okay, so a little bit of a sidebar here. I want to give my annual public service announcement reminder, and this is relevant because today is kickoff Sunday for the NFL. So as I've shared with you guys before, I am from Alabama, where football is the air we breathe. It is the number one religion by far, and so it is just a part of who I am. I almost regret it at this point, but it won't leave me alone. So what happens is that a lot of my sermon illustrations include references to football or football players or stories. So what this means is the better you understand the game of football the better you will understand my sermon illustrations, the better you will understand the Word of God. Make sense? So I'm giving you a godly reason to watch football. You are welcome. <clears throat> okay, so now back to the sermon. So growing up, I was majorly committed to playing football, especially the position quarterback. And the summer after my seventh grade year, I went to the Bowden Passing Academy at Troy State University. It was a summer camp for quarterbacks and wide receivers to get some instruction from college coaches. And I was pretty young, 13 years old, from a small town in rural Alabama. So no surprise, I was pretty naive as to the scope of the world. And I remember walking to our first camp session for the week, and the football stadium where we practiced was at the bottom of this hill. And I remember looking down into the stadium and seeing there already gathered for practice what felt like tens of thousands of other guys just like me. Guys who were committed to football. Guys who were committed to playing quarterback. And it just humbled me. Like, oh man, am I going to have to separate myself from this crowd to be as good as I want to be? And the answer was a resounding and humbling yes. There is this crowd of average. There is this crowd of status quo. And you have to separate yourself from it to be who you want to be. That's not too unlike what Jesus is doing here with his disciples as he calls them out of the crowd. The average person in those crowds, they were impressed by Jesus. The average person in those crowds, they were admirers of Jesus. They liked Jesus. And the same is true today. The average person on the street, yeah, they'll probably tell you. Jesus is a cool dude. I like Jesus. But again, King Jesus is already starting to separate the wheat from the shaft. He's already starting to separate the sheep from the goats, the disciples from the crowds, because he's not looking for people who like him. He's looking for people who passionately, enduringly love him. And so he calls his disciples out of the crowd. The King James Version of 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says, and Peter is talking to the entire church here, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, the KJV. Ye are a chosen generation. Ye are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, 
a peculiar people. In other words, Peter is saying that we are not like the crowd out of which Jesus calls us. We are peculiar. We are different. We are distinct. Disciples of Jesus resist the status quo of worldliness that surrounds us because Jesus called us out of that. What crowd has Jesus called you out of? Or what crowd may Jesus be calling you out of now? For some of you, myself included, God called us out of the crowd of partiers. For a long time, I was in the middle of the party life, giving myself to whatever sensuality, and God called me out of it. For some of you, maybe God called you out of the crowd of religious hypocrites. Your life was dominated by being judgmental, gossipy, and arrogant, and Jesus called you out of it. For some of you, maybe God called you out of the country club crowd of wealthy elites. You were caught up in the allure of status and money and wealth, and God called you out of it. And he said, you're going to be different from amongst the other partiers. You're going to be peculiar amongst the crowd of religious people. You're going to be distinct from all the other rich people. Because when Jesus' reign comes to earth, he brings the power of heaven. He has a huge impact. He draws these big crowds. But among those crowds, he's looking for disciples. And the first characteristic of those disciples is that they are called out of that crowd to follow him, to live differently. So what crowd has Jesus called you out of? Or what crowd may he be calling you out of now to follow him? The second distinguishing mark of Jesus is that they spend time with him. Disciples of Jesus spend time with Jesus. So after calling them on the mountain, Jesus then formally appoints the 12 disciples who will eventually become the 12 apostles later on. But before they are sent out, and apostle literally means sent ones. Before they are sent out, they are to be with Jesus. Mark tells us that Jesus appointed the 12 so that they might be with him. So I don't want you to miss this, church. Before the disciples work for Jesus, they are to simply be with Jesus. Before they can be his ministers, they are to be his apprentices. And friends, this is a model of discipleship that is experienced in many spheres of life. In the trades, an electrician must go through a process of what's called being a journeyman. And this includes spending a certain amount of hours with a master electrician. Or in the medical field, a medical student must go through a process called a residency. This includes a four-year stretch working with medical doctors. And these are formative experiences of not merely learning information, but learning by imitation. The student doesn't just absorb what is taught, the student absorbs the teacher. They don't just gain knowledge, they gain a relationship. That's what Jesus is saying he wants for the 12 disciples, but it's also true that he wants this for all his disciples. He wants us to be with him 
before we go out and serve him. He wants us to know him before we go make him known. There's a really great picture of this truth from the life of Christ. It's found in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. This story is about Jesus entering into the home of two sisters, Mary and Martha. And the two sisters have two very different approaches to relating with Jesus. It's just another example of how two siblings could grow up in the same house, have the same parents, and yet be the exact opposite. That's Mary and Martha. But here's their story about how they differently related with Christ. Luke writes this. Now as Jesus and his disciples went on their way, Jesus entered a village. And a woman named Martha welcomed Jesus into her house. And Martha had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to the Lord's teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to Jesus and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered Martha, 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 you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. So Martha is prioritizing serving Jesus while Mary is prioritizing being with Jesus. And Jesus says, Mary has chosen the good portion. Mary has chosen the one thing necessary to be with Jesus. So Christian, let me ask you, what are your spiritual priorities? In other words, are you prioritizing spiritual activity for God over spiritual communion with God? Because many of us are good at getting the church activities done. I give my money, I go to church, I serve on this ministry, I attend all the events, I check all the Christian activity boxes. But friend, when is the last time you spent an extended amount of time away from the busyness of life in silence and solitude just to listen for God's voice? When is the last time you spent an extended amount of time away from the busyness of life in silence and solitude, just to meditate on God's word? When is the last time you were simply with Jesus? Now, hopefully your time in worship, hopefully your time in life group is also an experience of being with Jesus, but sometimes we can approach life so frantically that we're just trying to get it all done, get church done, get life group done, get serving done, get giving done. But the problem is, is that there's always more to be done. And so we constantly have to come back to this truth that discipleship to Jesus is first about being with Jesus before it's doing for Jesus. What distinguishes the disciples of King Jesus? We are called out of the crowd we spend time with Jesus, and finally, we are given authority to minister. We are given authority to minister. What we see next is that as important as being with Jesus is, the goal of being with him is to be sent out by him. Verse 14 reads, And Jesus appointed the twelve 
so that he might, they might be with him and he might send them. So being with Jesus is not the end all be all. Being with Jesus leads to being sent out by Jesus. Disciples are to be with Jesus in order that we might eventually do for Jesus. And the doing Mark mentions here is preaching. The rest of verse 14 tells us that Jesus' goal was to send them out to preach. Now, most of us, when we think of preaching, we think of what I'm doing right now, namely Sunday morning pulpit preaching. But that's not necessarily what Jesus had in mind here. The kind of preaching Jesus had in mind here is what we more commonly refer to as sharing the gospel. Some of their gospel sharing may have been in a public setting like this one, but as we'll see later on, a lot of their preaching of the gospel would happen from house to house as they visited people. And a lot of their gospel sharing would happen in the public square or in the synagogue as they conversed in one-on-one conversations. So this isn't preaching in the Sunday morning pulpit sense. But if it isn't Sunday morning preaching that he's talking about, why does Jesus use the word preaching here? Why doesn't he use a word like share the gospel or speak the gospel? Well, the word preaching carries the idea of an authoritative declaration. Preaching is an announcement. It's not simply talking about ideas. Instead, it's proclaiming a message. Preaching implies that something is being spoken with authority not mere opinion. And not only does Jesus send them out to preach with authority, but verse 15 says that Jesus gave the disciples, quote, authority to cast out demons. Now, we're not told here a whole lot about demon possession or what it exactly looks like to cast out a demon. As Mark writes these words, he just assumes that we know people can be possessed or at least heavenly influenced by demons. And secondly, he assumes we know those demons can be cast out by the authority of Christ. He just assumes those two things are true instead of explaining or defending them. C.S. Lewis has a helpful thought about demons and spiritual warfare from his book, The Screwtape Letters. Lewis writes this. He says, quote, There are two equal and opposite errors into which people can fall about the devils. One error is to disbelieve in their existence. The other error is to believe in their existence and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. Lewis says that some Christians act as if spiritual warfare and the existence of demonic powers don't even exist. They don't even think about spiritual warfare. They don't even calculate the possibility of dark powers influencing their lives. But then there are other Christians who do just the opposite. And for them, there's a demon under every rock and behind every tree. And Lewis is saying both of these positions are errors. We need to avoid both of these extremes when it comes to how we think about spiritual warfare and the existence of demons. Nevertheless, despite wanting to avoid these extremes, Jesus here says that when we share the gospel and when we pray for people, we are engaging in a spiritual battle for their souls. But here's the key. We enter that battle not under our own authority, 
we enter our ministry not by our power, but we help spread the message and power of God's kingdom by the authority of Christ given to us. So imagine this scenario. You go to a restaurant after church. Let's say you go to McDonald's because Chick-fil-A is closed on Sundays. And you walk into McDonald's, but instead of going to the counter to order your food, you walk behind the counter and into the kitchen and start cooking your own food. You throw fries into the fryer. You start grabbing all the other supplies to make a hamburger. You're back there just acting like you own the place. Meanwhile, I'm sure the other employees are looking at you like, uh, excuse me, who are you? What are you doing? And maybe they would even say, who gave you the right to come back here? And they would be correct to ask you that question. You have not been given the right to enter that kitchen. You have not been given the authority to do the work of cooking there. You don't have the McDonald's uniform with the visor, you know, and the polo with the little stitched-in golden arches. It would be a complete anomaly. It would be totally awkward for you to try to work there because you're not employed there. You're not empowered or authorized to be there. But what this text is saying when it comes to the ministry of the gospel is just the opposite for us who follow Jesus. Disciples of Jesus have been given the right to enter in the spaces of gospel ministry. Disciples of Jesus have been given the authority to do the work of gospel ministry. Disciples of Jesus have been employed and empowered and authorized by King Jesus. And he doesn't confer to us a specific uniform like McDonald's employees have. Instead, you think about it, we bear the name of Christ himself. We are called Christians Everyone who is in Christ by faith, we are conferred the name of Christ. And as a Christian, we minister with the authority of Christ. Jesus spent time with his disciples so that they might, with his authority, preach the gospel and cast out demons doing the work of the ministry. And so I have to ask, Christian, are you engaging in the work of the ministry? And do you realize the authority that's been given to you for this work? Jesus' reign comes to earth with all the power of heaven, and he shares that power with us. He shares his authority with us who follow him. So Christianity is not a spectator sport. Unlike a lot of us who are going to go home and sit on the couch and just watch football. Christianity is not a spectator sport for you to sit on the sidelines, for you to lay on the couch, for you to watch the professionals do the work. It's not what Christianity is. Or to go back to the cooking illustration, Christianity is not a Food Network reality TV show where you watch the specialist cook the food. No, if you are following Christ, then you are to get on the playing field and contribute to the mission of Christ. If you are following Christ, then you are employed by Him to get in the kitchen, to work, 
to speak the gospel with authority, to pray over people's lives with authority. Now, you may be thinking to yourself and trying to find an excuse. Well, CT, Jesus here in Mark chapter 3, he's not talking to me. He's not telling me to share the gospel. He's talking to the 12 disciples. He's talking to Peter, James, John, and the rest. And those guys were pros. Those guys spent time literally in the physical presence of Jesus. So surely Jesus is not expecting me to share the gospel. Surely Jesus is not expecting me to engage in spiritual warfare. Maybe that's an objection you have. Well, I do admit, yes, obviously Jesus here in the immediate context is talking to the 12 disciples and he is commissioning them for their special role they would play as apostles. However, consider two things. First, these guys were not some super special, amazingly spiritual, awesomely gifted Christians. No, Peter, James, John, and the rest were normal dudes like you and me. Several of them were relatively uneducated, blue-collar fishermen. Matthew was maybe a little more educated as an accountant, but it's not like he was raised up in the synagogues with a master's degree in theology and ministry. No, these were normal guys who struggled in the Christian life just like you and me. But that's the kind of people who God uses. He uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. So if you think you are too ordinary, if you think you are too unspiritual to do the work of the gospel, then you're right. You are. But that's exactly the kind of people God uses to do great things. So don't let your normalness or your lack of education or whatever hold you back from doing God's work because King Jesus gives us authority to do his work. Secondly, I want you to consider a verse from 1 Peter. In 1 Peter chapter 3, the apostle Peter is writing to all Christians. He has other sections in this letter where he's talking to pastors. He has other sections in this letter when he's writing to husbands or wives. Not here in 1 Peter chapter 3. He is writing to all Christians in these verses. And he says in chapter 3 verse 15, Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. So the apostle says that for those of us who live with the hope of Christ, there are going to be people who ask, why are you so hopeful? It seems like you just have this deep joy in life. Why is that? And when that happens, when we're asked those questions, the apostle says, be ready. Be prepared to give an answer for your hope. And what is the answer for our hope? It's Jesus. It's his gospel message that we've heard and that has changed our lives. Peter says every Christian should be ready to share that message. Not just the 12 disciples, not just pastors, but everyone who follows Jesus should be prepared to preach Jesus, to share this proclamation this good news declaration of his life, death, and resurrection on behalf of unworthy sinners. So Christian, who is God calling you to reach out with the gospel? Who in your life needs to hear the hope of the gospel? Who is there in your life who wants to hear from you 
and learn from you more about the hope of the gospel will know that when you speak to them, you do so under the authority of King Jesus. If you follow Jesus, then you are authorized, you are permitted, you are commissioned to get in the kitchen and do the work. You've got all the jersey you need, having placed your faith in Christ and bear his name as Christian. This is what happens, friends, when heaven meets earth. When Jesus arrives, when his kingdom makes touchdown on earth, some amazing things happen. Bodies are healed, demons are destroyed, divided people come together. But amazing as all those things are, what Jesus is interested in here is disciples. What Jesus is interested in here is not the people who are wowed by all the fireworks of his ministry. Jesus is looking for loyal subjects to himself. He calls us out of the crowd. He calls us into relationship with him to be with him. And he calls us to authoritatively serve him as we speak the gospel, as we engage in battle with the powers of darkness. So let's continue to follow him and let's continue to engage the work that he has commissioned us for. I pray it would be so for you and for me. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Church, let's stand as we respond to God's word together. We'll have a moment of reflection and I'll pray for us. Our Father in heaven, we come before you in the name of Jesus. God, we are grateful for our heaven-sent Savior. We are grateful for his arrival on earth, bringing your kingdom, your power, your presence, your love, your truth. So many amazing things have come to us in the life of Christ. We are grateful for the sacred scriptures that now bear witness to us, that now speak to us and give us a vision of our gracious Savior. Father, I pray over the next several weeks as we open Mark's gospel, help us to see him. Help us to hear from him. Help us to love him, God. Help us to be overwhelmed by the presence and love and beauty of Christ. Father in heaven, I pray for any of my friends here who feel too normal to serve you. I pray for any of my friends here who feel too unspiritual to contribute to your mission. God, would you speak to us an affirming word that there is one thing necessary to serve you, and that is to be with Jesus. And so, Father, I pray that every heart would be drawn to him by faith. I pray that every heart would be open to receive his truth and his grace and his love and your presence. God, help us to be with Jesus so that we could serve you. No matter how normal, no matter how ordinary, no matter how sinful even we are, God, you overcome these things and you use broken men and women to do great things for your glory. So may it be so, even here at Woodside Royal Oak, this normal church, bless us, we pray, as we continue to lift high 
the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.